Chapter sixteen of British Highways and Byways from a Motor Car by Thomas Dowler Murphy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Christine Blashford. Chapter sixteen The Haunts of Milton and Penn. Leaving London by the Harrow Road, in course of an hour we came to the famous college town, which lies about fifteen miles north of the city. It is known chiefly for its boys' school, which was founded early in the reign of Queen Elizabeth, and at which many great Englishmen received their early education. The school is situated on the top of a hill, one of the most commanding positions in the vicinity of London, and on the very summit is the Norman Church. The view from this churchyard is one of the finest in England. For many miles the fertile valley of the Thames spreads out like a great park, exhibiting the most pleasing characteristics of an English landscape. On one side the descent is almost precipitous, and at the edge, in the churchyard, stands a gigantic elm, now in the late stages of decay, which still bears the sobriquet of Byron's Elm. It is said that Byron, during his days at Harrow, would sit here for hours at a time and contemplate the beautiful scene which spread out before him. A descendant of one of the poet's friends has placed near the spot a brass tablet, inscribed with the somewhat stilted lines on a distant view from Harrow churchyard. Spot of my youth, whose hoary branches sigh, swept by the breeze that fans the cloudless sky. Oh, as I trace again thy winding hill, mine eyes admire, my heart adores thee still. Thou drooping elm, beneath whose boughs I lay, and frequent muse the twilight hours away, how do thy branches, moaning to the blast, invite this bosom to recall the past, and seem to whisper as they gently swell, take, while thou canst, a lingering last farewell. We reached Harrow too late to attend church as we had hoped, the morning services just closing as we entered the churchyard. We saw everywhere numbers of students in Sunday garb, and an odd appearance these boys of from fifteen to eighteen presented, in a costume very nearly the counterpart of an ordinary dress suit, usually set off by a high silk hat. Harrow is associated with the names of many men who attained high rank in English history and literature, some of whom strove in their boyhood days to anticipate immortality by carving their names on the wooden desks. Among these may still be seen the rudely cut letters of the names of Byron, Sheridan, and Peel. The town, which slopes away from the top of the hill, has an up-to-date appearance and is a favourite place for suburban residences of wealthy Londoners. The road leading down the hill from the church turned sharply out of view, and just as we were beginning the descent, a gentleman hastened to us and cautioned us not to undertake it. He said that numerous motors had been wrecked in the attempt. We went down by a roundabout way, but when we came to pass the hill at its foot, we found it was not nearly so steep as some we had already passed over. Two or three hours over narrow and generally bad roads for England brought us to the village of Chalfont St. Giles, where John Milton made his residence while writing Paradise Lost. It is a retired little place, mere lanes leading into it. The shriek of the railroad train does not disturb its quietude, the nearest station being several miles away. The village doubtless appears much as it did in Milton's time, three hundred years ago, and the cottage which he occupied stands practically unaltered. A notice posted outside stated that the cottage would not be shown on Sunday, but such announcements had little terror for us by this time, and we found no difficulty in gaining admittance to the quaint little building. It is in the Elizabethan style, with half-timber frame and sagging tile roof. The windows have small, diamond-shaped panes of leaded glass set in rude iron frames and open on a typical English flower-garden. The villagers purchased the cottage by public subscription, and its preservation is thus fortunately insured. The tenant acts as caretaker, and apparently takes pride in keeping the place in order. The poet's room, directly on the right when entering, is rather dark and has a low-beamed ceiling. 
There is a wide fireplace, with the old-time appliances accompanying it, and one can imagine the blind poet sitting by his fireside on winter days, or enjoying the sweetness that in summertime came through the antique windows from the flower-garden. Here he dictated Paradise Lost to his daughter, who acted as his secretary. One cannot help contrasting the unsurpassed majesty and dignity of the great poem with the humble and even rude surroundings of the cottage. Milton came here in 1665 to escape the plague, which was then devastating London. His eldest daughter was, at that time, about seventeen years of age, and there is reason to believe that she was with him during his stay in St. Giles. We were delighted with the place, for we had seen little else more typical of old-time England than this cottage, which would have been worth seeing aside from its connection with the great epic poet. In front was the garden, a blaze of bright colours, and the walls were half hidden by climbing rose-vines in full bloom, for the roses in England stay much later in the summer than they do with us. The entrance to the cottage fronts on the garden. There is no door next the street, the great chimney built on the outside leaving no room for one. We were now in the vicinity where William Penn was born and where he lies buried. We had some trouble in finding Jordan's, the little meeting-house near which is the grave of the Quaker philanthropist. Many of the people of whom we inquired did not know of its existence, and after considerable wandering through the byways, we learned that we were within a mile of the place. For this distance we followed a shady lane, overarched by trees and so ill-kept that it was about as rough motoring as one will find in England. Directly at the foot of a steep hill we came upon the meeting-house, nestling in a wooded valley. It had in its plain simplicity the appearance of an ordinary cottage, with the Quakers there in no such thing as a church, for they prefer to call their places of worship simply meeting-houses. We were surprised to find a number of people about the chapel, and soon learned that we had the good fortune to arrive on one of the meeting-days. These meetings had for years been held annually, but during the present summer they were being held once a month. As the friends are not numerous in this vicinity, many of the congregation had come from long distances, some from London. We learned this in conversation with a sweet-faced, quiet-mannered lady, who had all the Quaker characteristics. She said that she and her husband had come from London that day, most of the way on their cycles, that they had been in Philadelphia and knew something of America. She presented us to a benevolent-looking, white-bearded man, who afterwards proved to be the leader of the meeting, simply saying, "'Our friends are from Iowa.' The old gentleman pressed us to remain, as the meeting would begin immediately, and we were delighted to acquiesce. There were about forty people gathered in the little room, which was not more than fifteen by twenty feet in size, and supplied with the plainest straight-backed benches imaginable. It was a genuine Quaker meeting. For perhaps half an hour the congregation sat in perfect silence, and finally the old gentleman who acted as leader arose and explained, largely for our benefit, I think, as we were the only strangers present, that this was the Quaker method of worship. Unless a member of the congregation felt he had something really worth saying, he waited to speak only as the spirit moved him. I could not help thinking that I had been in many meetings where, if this rule had been followed, everybody would have been better off. However, in the course of a few minutes he arose again and began his talk. We had attended many services in England at noted churches and cathedrals, but for genuine Christianity, true brotherly love and real inspiration, I think the half-hour talk of the old Quaker was worth them all. We agreed that it was one of our most fortunate experiences. In the churchyard we stood before the grave of William Penn, marked by the plainest kind of a small headstone, and identical with the few others beside it. We expressed wonder at this, but the lady with whom we had previously talked explained that it would be inharmonious with the Quaker idea to erect a splendid monument to any man. For many years the graves had not been marked at all, but finally it was decided that it would not be inappropriate to put up plain headstones, all of the same style, to let visitors know where the great Quaker and his family rest, and very simple were the inscriptions chiselled upon the stones. All around the meeting-house is a forest of great trees, and no other building is in the immediate vicinity. 
One might almost have imagined himself at a Quaker service in pioneer times in America, when the meeting-houses were really as remote and secluded as this one seemed, rather than within twenty miles of the world's metropolis, in a country teeming with towns and villages. It was about three o'clock when we left Jordan's, with a view of reaching Oxford, still a good many miles away, by nightfall. In this vicinity are the Burnham beaches, made known almost everywhere by the camera and the brush of the artist. A byway runs directly among the magnificent trees, which we found as imposing as the pictures had represented. Sprawling old trees, many feet in circumference, but none of a very great height. Nearby is Stoke Poges Church, whose memory is kept alive by the elegy of the poet Gray. It is one of the best known of the English country churches, and is visited annually by thousands of people. The poet and his relatives are buried in the churchyard, and the yew tree under which he is said to have meditated upon the theme of the immortal poem is still standing, green and thriving. The church, half covered by ivy and standing against a background of fine trees, presents a beautiful picture. In the immediate neighbourhood, a monument has been raised in memory of Gray, a huge bulk of stone of inartistic and unpleasing design. The most appropriate monument of the poet is the church itself, with its yew tree, which is now known wherever the English language is spoken. Two or three miles further on is Windsor, with its castle, the principal residence of royalty, and Eton College, its well-known school for boys. This school is more exclusive and better patronised than Harrow, and I was told that it is quite a difficult problem for the average youth to enter at all. The sons of the nobility and members of the royal family are given the preference, and expenses are so high as to shut out all but the wealthy. Windsor Castle is the most imposing of its kind in the world. It is situated on the Thames River, about twenty miles from London. Crowning a gently rising hill, its massive towers and battlements afford a picturesque view from almost anywhere in the surrounding country, and especially from points of vantage in the park, where one can catch glimpses of the fortress through some of the avenues of magnificent trees. On a clear day, when the towers of the castle are sharply outlined against the sky and surmounted by the brightly coloured royal standards, one might easily imagine himself back in the good old days of knight errantry. Windsor is shown to visitors at any time when the royal family is not in residence. Queen Victoria and Albert, the Prince Consort, are buried in Frogmore Park nearby, but the tombs are sacredly guarded from the public. The grounds surrounding the castle are laid out in flower gardens and parks, and the forest of more than 7,000 acres is the finest in England. It is one of the royal preserves where the king occasionally goes hunting, but it really serves more the purpose of a great public park. There are many splendid drives through the forest, open to everybody, the main one leading straight away from the castle gates for about four miles, and terminating at an equestrian statue of George the Third of more or less happy memory. It is almost straight and without hills of consequence. It is a favourite route for motorists, and at several points were stationed bicycle couriers of the Motor Union to give warning for police traps. These guards patrolled the road and carried circular badges, red on one side and white on the other. If the white side was shown to the passing motorist, the road ahead was clear, but the red was a caution for moderate speed for several miles. This system, which we found in operation in many places, is the means of saving motor drivers from numerous fines. The bicycle courier receives a fee very thankfully, and no doubt this constitutes his chief source of revenue for service rendered. About ten miles from Oxford we passed through Henley-on-Thames, famed for the university rowing matches. Here the river lies in broad still stretches that afford an ideal place for the contests. The Thames is navigable for small steamboats and houseboats from London to Oxford, a distance of sixty miles, and the shores of the stream throughout afford scenes of surpassing beauty. Just at sunset the towers of Oxford loomed in the distance, and it was easy to recognise that of Magdalen College, which rises to a height of two hundred feet. 
Though Oxford is one of the older of the English towns, parts of it seemed as up-to-date as any we had seen, and the Randolph Hotel compared favourably with the best we found anywhere. The time which a tourist will devote to Oxford will depend upon his point of view. To visit the forty-four colleges in detail and to give any time to each would manifestly require several days, if not weeks, and especially would this be true if one were interested to any extent in student life in the university. Manifestly, people touring England in a motor-car do not belong to the class described. In order to get the most out of the trip, there is a constant necessity for moving on. By an economical use of time, one may gain a fair idea of Oxford in a few hours. This was what we had done on a previous trip, and consequently we spent little time in the city on our second visit, merely remaining overnight. I think the method we pursued would be the most practical for anyone who desires to reach the most interesting points of the town in the shortest time. We engaged an experienced hack driver, who combined with his vocation the qualities of a well-informed guide as well. We told him of our limited time and asked him to make the most of it by taking us about the universities, stopping at such as would give us the best idea of the schools and of university life. He did this to our satisfaction, and as we passed the various institutions, his comments gave us a general idea of each. He stopped at some of the more noted colleges, where we often found guides who conducted us about the buildings and grounds. Perhaps Magdalen College is as interesting as any. Its fine quadrangular tower is one of the landmarks of the city, and they will tell you of the quaint custom that has prevailed for many centuries of celebrating May Day morning, with music from the top of the tower by a choir of boys. Magdalen has its park and gardens, and Addison's Walk, a pathway extending for considerable distance between an avenue of fine trees beside a clear little river, is reputed to have been a haunt of the great essayist when a student at the university. Next to Magdalen, the most celebrated colleges are New College, Christchurch, and Merton. At the first of these, Cecil Rhodes was a student, and the great promoter must have had a warm feeling for the university, since his bequest has thrown open the various colleges to more than a hundred students from all parts of the world, but principally from the United States. Practically all of the students have their quarters in connection with the colleges, and meals are served in public dining-rooms. Aside from its colleges, there is much else of interest in and about Oxford. The castle of which there are scant remains is one of the very oldest in England, and has a varied and often stirring history. During the Parliamentary War, Oxford was one of the strongholds of the King, and underwent many sieges from Cromwell's army, which was responsible for the final destruction of the castle. As a seat of learning, the town dates from the time of Alfred, who was born at Wantage, only twenty miles away. Naturally, Oxford was always prominent in ecclesiastical affairs, and during the reign of Mary, the three bishops of the English church suffered martyrdom there. In one of the public places of the city stands a tall Gothic monument commemorating the services of these men, and incidentally putting severe strictures on the errors of the Roman church. The language in which this latter clause is stated caused a storm of protest when the monument was erected, but it had no more effect than did the protest against the ironclad anti-Catholic coronation oath of the king. The Bodleian Library, located in Oxford, is the greatest in England, with the exception of the Library of the British Museum. End of chapter 16